great. Okay, let's get started. The Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, um, and the Torah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah is the story of the sending away of Ishmael, the banishment of Ishmael. And in order to kind of have a better perspective, we'll look at that story today. But in order to have a better perspective on that story, we started off last week looking at the story of the birth of Ishmael. And actually, we started kind of way back at the beginning with the first time the Torah introduces us to Sarai. Do you remember what's, what's the first thing we're told about Sarai? That she's barren, right? She's, she's unable to have children, and it's particularly striking because that pasuk is kind of embedded within a very long genealogy full of other people having children, right? Each person, we're told the, you know, the man's name, the age that he is when his oldest child is born, the fact that he then has many other children, and kind of in the middle of all of that, we're told Avram marries Sarai, and Sarai is barren and doesn't have a child. Um, then we saw that after Avram and Sarai had been living together in the land of Canaan for ten years. Sarai says, God has stopped me from having a child. And uh, so she comes up with a plan. Remember what's her plan? Exactly. She has this maidservant named Hagar, and she says to Avram, you should uh, uh, come and lay with my, my maidservant, and perhaps I will be built up through her. And we were saying last week that it doesn't seem that what Sarai is suggesting is I can't have any children, but I want you, Avram, to have a child, so you go have a child. Continue you know, your covenantal destiny with someone else. That doesn't seem to be her suggestion. Instead, what she's saying is, it seems that I myself am unable to have a child, but perhaps through Sarai, I, through Hagar, rather, I will, I will be able to be built up. And if you remember, we saw Barbanel had two different suggestions for how that could play out. Either that uh, Hagar would sort of give birth on Sarai's knees. Sarai would sort of uh, adopt the babies. Hagar would just be her surrogate, and Sarai would raise the child. And um, by virtue of adopting and raising this baby, it would be as if it was Sarai's baby. Or alternatively, maybe Sarai was hoping that if she was sort of involved in uh, raising this child, then uh, sure, then um, then maybe she herself would be able to, to conceive a child. At any rate, the plan uh, starts off okay, right? Hagar does in fact get pregnant instantly. Uh, but then quickly goes awry because as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, she begins to disrespect Sarai. Sarai gets very upset. Remember, what did she say? Right? My wrong is upon you, Avram. Even though Sarai is the one disrespecting her, she gets very angry at Avram. She says, my wrong is upon you. I gave you my maidservant, Bechakecha, in your bosom. Uh, as soon as she saw that she was pregnant, she began to disrespect me. May God judge between us. Um, and if you remember, we looked at um, we looked at a very interesting midrash that talked, you know, that basically suggested, you know, what is what is Sarai really angry at? She's really angry at the fact that um, that Abraham doesn't seem to be concerned with Sarai's infertility, right? That when Abraham had a chance to pray to God for a child, Abraham said, "Hashem right? God, what will you give me? I have no children." And in the Midrash, Sarai says, why did you say, I have no children? If only you had said, we have no children, then God would, would have made sure that both of us had a child. But because you were only thinking about yourself, and you said, I have no children, now you are going to be able to have a child, and I won't. And if you remember, the parable that the Midrash brought was this image of two prisoners in a jail cell, right? And one of them is freed, and the other one isn't. And the one who gets left behind is sort of angry at the one who got out for not rescuing him as well. Um, uh, remember what's Avram's response to Sarai? Yeah. 
that, that motion exactly, sorry, right? Do whatever you want, right? He says, here's your maidservant, she's in your hand. Do whatever you want to her, right? Which is kind of strikingly callous, right? There's something kind of crazy about saying that about the woman who's carrying his child, right? Saying to Sarai, do whatever you want. Um, and Sarai does indeed mistreat her, right? Sarai abuses her, and Hagar runs off. Do you remember Ramban is very angry about this? Ramban says, not only... Uh, he says, both Avram and Sarai sinned over here. Avram sinned by telling Sarai to do this. Sarai sinned by doing this. Um, and as a result, he says, Hagar gives birth to a child who will you know, continually trouble the children of Avram and Sarai. Uh, but so Sarai uh, abuses Hagar. Hagar runs off. If you remember, an angel finds her along the way. The angel has a couple of helpful suggestions. The first suggestion is, uh, go back to your mistress and continue to be abused by her. And as we saw, Sarai did not find, uh, sorry, Hagar does not find that compelling, and so she doesn't doesn't respond. And then the angel says, uh, "Go back, and I'll, I'll give you. I'll make sure you know you'll have a lot of children." And that also doesn't doesn't seem to do it for her. She doesn't respond. And then the angel says to her, "Go back. You'll have a son. The son's name will be Ishmael, because God has heard your suffering. He will be this wild man. His hands will be in everything." Um, and uh, Hagar, at that point, begins to speak and. Um, and she goes back, and if you remember, she goes back, and she gives birth to a son. And uh, who names the baby? Avram, right? Avram names him Yishmael. And one of the things I was uh, saying at the end of our last class is that I think it's a really interesting moment, because Avram names the baby Yishmael, and it's not clear whether what happened was Hagar came back and she told Avram this whole story, and as a result, Avram knew to name the baby Yishmael because God heard Hagar's suffering. Or whether what happened was that Hagar, maybe nobody even noticed she was gone, right? The whole story in the wilderness could have taken place over the course of, you know, two or three hours. Maybe, you know, it could be that Abraham and Sarah didn't even know that this whole transformative event had happened for Hagar. And when the baby is born, Abraham names the baby Ishmael not because of Hagar, but he thinks God has heard his prayer, right? He had asked for a child, and God has provided him with a child. So the Ishmael could very well be, from Abraham's perspective, God has heard me, right? And... And one of the things that we'll see in the story, um, as the story continues, is that Abraham is thrilled with Ishmael. He is, he's so happy to have this boy, he's, um, and he very much thinks of, of Ishmael as his heir. So much so that actually in the, in the next chapter, um, right, so we had, been, we had been in chapter 16, so if you turn to chapter 17 of Rishi, which is page 28 in the JTS Tanakh, if that's the one that you're using, Right, so at the very end of chapter 16, at the top of page 28, Ishmael is born, Abraham names him. Beginning of chapter 17, we're told um, it's now 13 years later. Abraham is now uh, 99 years old. And um, God appears to Abraham and uh, sort of restates God's covenant with Abraham and actually adds in something. Um, this is the, the moment where um, God tells Abraham to circumcise himself and all the members of his household. Um, and, um, you know, Avram is told to do that right away, but in the future, if you look at verse 12 at the top of page 29, we're told, um, In the future, though, every baby that's born into your household, when, they are eight day, when he is eight days old, uh, he should be circumcised. Um, sorry, okay. sorry, the top of page 29 right now, okay. the beginning of chapter 17. Now, Right, so so the, the covenant has been restated, and this uh, additional covenant of, of circumcision has been added. And 
And now in verse 15, oh sorry, another important thing that happened earlier in chapter 17 is that um, Abram's name also gets changed, right? It used to be Abram, and we're told, and God tells Abram that Lo yikare od et shimcha Abram in verse 5, back on 28, page 28, your name will no longer be Abram, shimcha Abraham. Instead, your name will be Abraham, will add a hey in, ki abhamun goyim because you will be the father of many nations. Um, right, and Abraham at that moment might well think, yes, I have my son Ishmael, who's now 13, and he will become a great nation, and this will be great. Um, now, if you look at, if we skip to verse 15, which is sort of the middle of page 29, um, we're told, Vayomer Elohim el Avram, Sarai ishtecha lo tikra shema Sarai, ki Sarah shema. Also, your wife Sarai will have a name change. Her name will no longer be Sarai. She will also have a hey added to her name, and now her, she will be called Sarah instead of Sarai. And in verse 16, God says, and I will bless her. I'll also give you a son from her. And I will bless her. She will become many nations. The kings of people will come from her. This is great news, right? Not only does Abraham have blessings, but also Sarah. And this is actually the first moment where Sarah gets her own blessing. Um, if you remember, one of the big questions in Rashid up until now is, are all these promises that God is making to Abraham, are they just for Abraham or are they for Abraham and Sarah together? And it's kind of one of the big, the big issues in Rashid, right? It's not so clear because God keeps appearing to Abraham and offering him all of these things on behalf of his descendants. At the moment, up until now, Abraham didn't have any descendants, so we didn't know, right? Was the blessing kind of for Abraham and Sarah together, or was it just for Abraham? Once Abraham only asks for a child for himself, right? Once he says, you know, Anochi holech ariri, right? I am barren, not anachnu. Um, it seems as if Abraham might think that the blessings are all for him. And, you know, to the extent that Sarah is his wife, if he were to have a child with her, you know, they would also accrue to her, but maybe the blessings are all about him. And certainly now that he has this son Yishmael with another woman, he might think, you know, Sarah's not really a part of it at all. And here, for the first time in Breshit, we have God saying, actually, it's not just you, Abraham, but also Sarah will be blessed, right? She is going to have a child with you, but she specifically will be blessed. She will become the mother of many nations. Kings will, will come from her. And we have this sense that, that Sarai is really a part of the covenantal destiny. She's not just kind of an appendage, but she's, she's a real part of it. Now, Abram's reaction to this, right, instead of saying, hooray, my beloved wife Sarai will be blessed and will have a child, instead, right, in verse 18, uh, sorry, in verse 17, we're told, Vayipol Abraham al panav Abram falls on his face and he laughs, and he says in his heart, Halaven me'ashanimi valed, now that I'm a hundred, can I possibly have a child? And Sarah, she's 90, right? I like the fact, actually, that he already calls her Sarah, right? Her name was changed one verse earlier, and he, like, you know, gets with the program very quickly. He already, even in his heart, refers to her as Sarah now. But he says, um, you know, Sarah, she's 90, right? Can she possibly have a baby? This is crazy, right? And in verse 18, Abraham speaks out loud now, and he says, Abraham el Abraham speaks out loud to God, and Abraham says, Lu Yishmael If only Yishmael would live before you, right? And it seems that what Abraham is saying is, that's crazy, I can't really have another child, but I have a perfectly good son already, right? We don't need another one, right? Lu Yishmael Let Yishmael live before you, right? Let Yishmael be sort of the covenantal child who will kind of become the many nations. 
don't worry, God. Sarah doesn't need a son, right? We, we, you know, I already have one. Yeah. Something that I read that to be that you shouldn't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great that's a great reading of it also, right? It could be that Abraham is assuming that if he's going to have another child with Sarah, it must be that something will happen to Ishmael. Otherwise, why would you need more than one child, right? It, it could be that that's what he's thinking. And in fact, for people who still have the source sheet from last week, the very last source on the page is um, is actually a, a Barbanel on this very pasuk. I'll just read it out loud for people who don't have it. Um, but if you do have it, it's the very last one on the page. Um, Abarbanel says, Heshiva, oh, well, let's read one more verse, and then I'll read Abarbanel. Right, because uh, Abarbanel re- references both Abraham's saying of Yishmael Yishmael and also God's response. So Abraham says to God, let Yishmael live before him. And God responds in verse 19, again on page 29, uh, God responds and says, Vayomer Elohim, aval Sarah ishtachayu levitlachapen. God says, but no, your wife Sarah will give birth to a son, v'karata et shemo Yitzchak, and you should, you'll call the baby's name Yitzchak, v'hakimoti et briti ito l'vrit olam l'zaro acharav, and I will establish my covenant with him, right, through him. Uli Yisraet, uli Yishmael shmaticha, right, but in verse 20, God says, uh, but I've also heard you regarding Ishmael, and I will indeed also bless Ishmael, and I will make Ishmael into multitudes. Ishmael will have 12, 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But Yitzchak is going to be the covenantal child. Right? Ishmael will do very well, he will live and be well, he will become a great nation, but, but Yitzchak is really going to be your covenantal child. Yitzchak, the one whom Sarah will give birth to at this time next year. Um, right, so, so just to sort of keep track of the dynamic, right, God promises Abraham a child with Sarah. Abraham says, ah, we don't really need that, right? That's crazy. I already have a son, Yishmael. And God says, yes. Yishmael will, will, will live, he will do well, he will become a great nation, but he will not be your covenantal child. Yitzchak, who you will have with Sarah, will be your covenantal child. Um, so the Abarbanel over here on the source sheet from last week says, God responds to Abraham's question of, you know, could Yishmael not live before you, right? Or would the Yishmael would live before you? The Omro by saying, right, God responds by saying, Aval Sarah Ishtecha, but no, Sarah your wife. Um Ki'omer, right, as if to say, Avraham, Atahashavta Shakol Hatova, Asheri Adati Lakala, Sotlacha Yebaburecha. Avram, you thought that all of the good that I have promised you is all because of you. Right? Avram, you thought that the covenant was all about you. You thought it was your story, it was just about you. And therefore, as soon as you had your son Yishmael, you thought that the birth of Yitzchak was totally unnecessary, right? You thought that once you had your son Yishmael, that was all that was needed because you thought the covenant was just about you. Um, 
עד שמפני זה שאלת אם יחיה ישמעאל ואם יהיה לפניי בבריתי. So much so that you ask, you know, could not Yishmael live and be before me in my covenant, right? So Abarbanel understands it as, the, the original question is, as not just that Yishmael should live, Aphorites are saying slightly different, but right now he says Yishmael should live and also be the covenantal child. Um, and according to Abarbanel, God responds by saying, Da ki ein hadavar kein. You should know that this is not the way that the matter is. Um, because Sarah is worthy and fitting to have this child with you. Just as it needs to be your child, it also needs to be Sarah's child. Right? The covenant is not just about you, Abraham. It's about you and Sarah together. And so the fact that you have a child with Hagar is fine, but it's, that's not going to be the covenantal child. The covenantal child needs to be your child and Sarah's child. And Yishmael is not Sarah's son. And therefore, from Sarah's perspective, the birth of Yitzchak is totally necessary. Right? It's not enough to just have Yishmael because Yishmael is only Abraham's son. If the covenant was only about Abraham, then maybe once Yishmael was born, that would be enough. But because the covenant is about Abraham and Sarah together, the child needs to be Abraham and Sarah's child, and Hagar's child will do well for himself but will not will not kind of be you know become the covenantal child. Um okay. uh, right the last four words are even though Yishmael won't die. Right it seems as if Avram because Avram thought it was all about him, Avram said, wait, the only reason why I would need to have another child is if something were to happen to my first child, right? He's worried that maybe Yishmael will die and that's why he needs to have this this other son. And he says, no, no, like Yishmael is here, right? Let Yishmael live. We don't need another child. And God responds by saying, Yishmael will live, and he will become a great nation, but, um, but he's not going to be the child that I'm talking about. He's not going to be the child who will sort of become the covenantal nation because he's not also Sarah's child, and Sarah is actually very much a part of the story and is a part of the covenant. Someone had a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if Abraham didn't miss, you know, a lot of what was going on here. And I was thinking that um, his naming Yishmael and the angel in naming Yishmael, there's got to be some connection there. I don't know what it is. And then the next thing you know, everyone's getting circumcised. Mm -hmm. You know, and what does that actually mean? It's a sign for covenant, but maybe in their eyes it means like a renewed sexual life in some way, because look where the circumcision happens. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and Abraham, uh, and then they have a name change. Mm -hmm. So they're like, there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, he laughs. Um, um, because he doesn't get the fact maybe that since the um, uh, uh, circumcision represents the, not only the covenant but a way of being sexually active again yeah it could be yeah. it certainly seems as if chapter 18 is about a lot of change right each one of them changes their name yeah. and then right there's this physical change to his body right so it could be that it is sort of a time of change and kind of rebirth and that might be part of the imagery there that is that the first physical sign of the covenant yeah that yeah. yeah yeah i mean there have been there have been sort of um you know sacrifices that have been brought as other parts of the covenant right. but no no one has done anything to their body up until now yeah yeah so Stand, uh-huh. 
Ishmael, even though he is has a voice, mm-hmm. is the son of somebody who doesn't have a voice. Okay. But Yitzchak will be, if it's 12 months later, the son of somebody who has already had a voice. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of technical in terms of the, the covenantal lineage. Yeah, so although to the extent that Abraham is a part of the covenant, even though he I wasn't know, sort of born from a circumstance, you know, that's it could be. Yeah, yeah. But it does seem as if one of the things that's kind of happening here is that there's an attempt to sort of reorient Abraham's thinking, right? It seems clear that Abraham has sort of thought of, right, Ishmael at this point, right, between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18, 13 years have elapsed, right? And for those 13 years, Sarah has not had a child. Abraham has had Ishmael, and at this point, Abraham clearly thinks of Ishmael as his heir, right? He is uninterested in having other children, right? You know, even, right, it's amazing, right? God promises him this child, and Abraham seems completely uninterested, right? You know, he laughs, and he says, I have Ishmael, that is enough for me, I, you know. And, and you get the sense that he says that not just because he doesn't really believe maybe that this other child will be born, but also because it seems that Ishmael is all that he wanted, right? You know, he has, it seems as if Abraham is totally satisfied with Ishmael as, as an heir. Right. No, 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 he is a hundred, it's true. But also that it, I, I, think, I think it becomes important for the next part of the story. It seems that Abraham feels very fulfilled by having Ishmael, right? He has wanted a child, you know, for the past, uh, you know, up until the birth of Ishmael. And then once Ishmael is born, this is, you know, Abraham thinks everything is great, right? And, and it's interesting because when Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael, Abraham didn't seem so invested in the pregnancy, right? He basically said to Sarah, do whatever you want to this woman who's carrying my child. But once Ishmael is born, things shift for Abraham and now he really, you know, his plan was for Ishmael to, you know, to, to be the real heir. Um, and God says, no, no, there, you know, there'll be another child. Uh-huh. He has no idea what lies ahead for him. just beginning. Yeah. He is like being born yeah. He's 100 years old, he's going to another country, he's starting a new relationship. So yeah. it's almost like a necessary thing, because he had put his life behind him, I presume. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, no, behind him, he was satisfied. But tell me what you, tell me what you mean by going to another country. Well, he's starting a new nation. He's starting mm-hmm. a whole new thing mm-hmm. is beginning for him. Whereas he probably thought that his life was pretty much done, settled. Mm-hmm. When you talked about it's a reorientation of him, mm-hmm. you have to wake him up because yeah. he was satisfied. Yeah. I've had a very good life. Yeah. Know, and, and not just that, but also he's wanted this child for a very, very long time. And, and now he has. Right? Yeah, great. Totally. Exactly. Um, okay. Now, one thing is, so there are two things that are worth noticing over here. One is that Abraham doesn't, right, even though Sarai has been wanting a child also for, you know, a very, very long time, Abraham doesn't seem so concerned about her having a child, right? He seems to say, like, I have my child, things are set for me. Um, and even once he's told that, no, Sarai, Sarai or Sarah at this point really will have a child, um, he doesn't actually tell her about it, which is interesting, right? You would think that he might say, like, Wow, I have really great news to share with my wife, Sarah, but he doesn't, right? And we know that he doesn't tell her because um, because uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 18, um, when, when uh, the angels appear to, uh, to Avraham and Sarah and announce the birth of Yitzhak, Sarah is shocked, right? She's never heard this before. She also laughs. She doesn't think it's possible. So it doesn't seem, right, it seems as if this is the first that she's hearing of this. 
Um, and uh, that's also interesting to realize, right? It's not just that Abraham seemed kind of uninterested in the birth of Yitzhak, but he also hasn't shared the news with Sarah. But now the angels come and they announce that, yes, in the next year, Sarah will have a child. Um, and that, well, that actually sets us up very nicely for the actual Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah, which is chapter 21. But it's important to remember that two other things happen in between chapter 18 and chapter 21. One is... Um, is the destruction of Stone, right? The city of Stone gets destroyed. But also, even more interestingly for our purposes, in chapter 20, Abraham is continuing to sort of travel around in Canaan, and he gets to the land of Grar. Uh, the king of Grar is Abimelech. As soon as Abraham gets there, Abraham announces to everyone, he says, uh, this is my sister, Sarah, right? And, um, and Abimelech takes her, right? Abimelech takes her, and then eventually there are these uh, plagues on Abimelech's household and Abimelech um, uh, also God appears to Abimelech and announces that Sarah is really Abraham's wife and that uh, Abimelech uh, releases her. But it's a little crazy given that they've just been promised a child, right, within that year, right? It's crazy that Abraham is still announcing that Sarah is his sister, right? There's something very strange about that. And uh, if you remember at the very end of chapter 21, when um, sorry, the very end of chapter 20 uh, this is now page 37 in the JPS Tanakh. Um, Abimelech sends Sarah back, and Abraham prays for all of the women of Abimelech's household, because one manifestation of the plague was that none of them had been able to give birth. Right? So if you look actually at the very bottom of page 36, in, in uh, verse 17, we're told, Vayikalel Abraham el ha-Elohim. Uh, Abraham prays to God, Vayirpa Elohim et Abimelech v'atishtov v'amotav v'yeledu. And, Ab- and uh, God heals Abimelech and his wife and the, the women of the household, and they give birth. Ki atzor atzar Hashem ba'ad korechem v'beit Abimelech. Because God had stopped up the wombs of all of the household of Abimelech. Al-davar Sarah ishid Abraham because of the, the incident of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who had been taken. Now, two things are worth noticing. The language of ki asor asar Hashem ba'ad korechem reminds us a little bit of what Sarah said about herself originally, right? Ki, ki nena asarani Hashem miladir, right? God has stopped me from giving birth. And here, God is also stopping these other women from giving birth. Abraham prays on their behalf and they give birth. And not only do they give birth, but in the very next chapter, the first thing that happens is that, is that Sarah also gives birth. Um, which is interesting for a few reasons, right? One thing is that it kind of highlights the fact that Avram never prays for Sarah, right? He prays for these other women of Avimelech's household and they give birth. He never actually prays for his own wife. And it becomes very striking, actually, later on when, uh, when Yitzchak is married to Rivka and Rivka is unable to conceive. Immediately, the moment we're told that Rivka is unable to conceive, we're also told that Yitzchak prays for her and immediately... Yitzhak's prayers are answered and she becomes pregnant. So once we have that as a, you know, as a, as a backdrop, right, you get the sense that you know, Yitzhak prays for his wife and Avram really doesn't. Right? Avram instead prays for these women of Avimelech's household who give birth. Um, and I think that there's almost kind of a hinting here that to the extent that Sarai had sort of been a part of Avimelech's household when she was taken there, maybe Avram's prayer kind of includes her as well, right? Because there's something very interesting about these women who are unable to give birth, who are prayed for and give birth, and then, like, really, one pasuk later, Sarai is also having a child. So there's, there's something, I think, some sort of interesting suggestion there, that Avram doesn't directly pray for Sarah, but maybe his prayer, sort of, for these other women who, amongst whom Sarah had been, maybe somehow that winds up including her somehow. Yeah? 
It's, it's, I just have a hard time picturing her. I'm trying to imagine. Is she an old woman? And I don't mean this to be in a derogatory way, but mm -hmm. she's taken into Avinella's household because he imagines she's a young, beautiful, but she's not. She's an elderly lady. Yeah. But isn't that funny? So, I mean, there are, there are many midrashim, right, about how beautiful Sarah was. Even when she died, right, she was 127 because she was as beautiful as a seven-year-old and, you know, and so forth. So there's, I think there, there was, you know, there's kind of a whole mythology of the great beauty of Sarah. Partly because she's able to have a child at age 90, but also because she still seems so desirable at age 90 that, like, you know, the foreign king is taking her. So there's something, yeah, there is something very interesting about that. Um, Right? Either she, you know, either she was a remarkably beautiful woman, or what was the lifespan? So it's hard to say. I mean, the only lives that we really know about are the characters here, right? You know, uh, so she dies when she's 127. I think Avram is 175. I think, right? So do we know that that's average for that time? So I don't. I don't know. No, it's interesting that they not. So many often is it mentioned how old anybody is? Yeah. Finally, we hear an age here. Like, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But and it sounds totally. But but we do know that. I mean, it's hard to. It's always hard to kind of know what the norm was at any given point in time. But we know that these characters, Avram and Sarah, definitely think of themselves as being too old to have children. Right? Yeah. Each one of them reacts by saying, "What? You know, that's yeah. impossible." Um, so so so. How, so it could be that 90, 90 then is not 90 now. You know, if, if you live to 175, you know 90 is you know middle age. Yeah. But um, but it could, but it seems as if they certainly thought of it as an age at which one was not expecting to have a child. And, you know, each one of them. They got married when they were three, also. Like, so like Hard to say. Yeah, we also don't. I mean, it doesn't really say how old anybody was when they got married either. I mean, it does actually for Yitzchak. We know he was 40 when he got married. So, but we don't and actually know that. Um, no, it's hard to say, you know, yeah. like, it depends what you're applying to it. You know, certainly in the, in the earlier genealogies that we saw, some people didn't have their first child until they were in the hundreds, you know. And so, but it seems over here that being 90 and being 100 is thought of as, as unusually old to have a child. Um, okay, at any rate, that finally gets us to chapter 21, which is in fact the Torah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Right? It's a very beautiful beginning, right? The Hashem Pakadat Zarak Amar. This is page, the very top of... Uh, the beginning of chapter 21, page 37, um, God sort of remembered or took note of or redeemed, depending on how you want to define the word pakad. Um, uh, God, pakad let, let's say remembered right now, uh, as God said, and God does for Sarah as God had said that God would do. Sarah conceives and she gives birth to a child for Abraham in his old age, at exactly the time that God had said that she would. Uh, Abraham names his son that was born to him, that Sarah gave birth to for him. You'll notice that the verse is very much emphasizing that this is his child, right? It's it's Bino, his son, Hanolad Lo, who was born to him, that Sarah gave birth to, you know, on his behalf. Right? Why, why is there all this emphasis on it being his son? Because she was just not in all right, she right? She's been married for a very long time, unable to have a child. She gets taken to the home of this foreign king, and she emerges pregnant, right? Or it seems as if, you know, shortly afterwards, she gives birth to this baby. Um, right, there are all these Bidrashim that talk about the, 
yeah, the gossip mongers at the time, thinking that it was really Abimelech's child. And so the verse is very, very clear that this is, this is, uh, this is Abraham's child. In fact, there are Midrashim also the Yitzchak, uh, looked a lot like Abraham, so that way people would know that it was really Abraham's child, because you could imagine, right, how rumors would begin. Um, it almost looked like a, a threesome in a way, because God's in there as well. Mm-hmm. You know, God but better for God to be the threesome than Abimelech, right? That would be our, that would be our, better, our better scenario. Um, in verse 4, we're told, Vayamol Abraham circumcises his son Yitzchak when he is eight days old, and God commanded him, right? This is, again, the sense of the covenant that was set up uh, in the earlier chapters, now being kind of lived out with the, the circumcision of Yitzchak. Uh, Abraham was 100 years old when Yitzchak was born. And Sarah, in verse 6, says, um, God has made me laughter. Everyone who hears this will, will laugh. Um, and Yitzchakli is interesting because it almost, right on the plain meaning of it, it almost sounds like the laugh at me, right? God has made me kind of into a laughing stock, right? People will sort of laugh when they hear that a 90-year-old woman has had a child. And um, there are many midrashim that very much want to make sure that we don't read it that way, right? They want, to, we want, they, they want us to read it as a pure expression of joy and not at all a, a mockery. And uh, so there's a, there's a beautiful midrash, actually, in Deshi Rabbah that I will uh, read part of it to you. But that basically, um, that on the day that Yitzchak was born, the whole world was happy because um, many other wonderful things happened on that day. There we go. Um, the Midrash says that, uh, says that many barren women gave birth on that same day that Sarah gave birth. Many people who were sick were healed on that day, and many prayers were answered. Right? So there's a sense when she says, Kol everyone will laugh with me. The sense was that Yitzchak's birth was an occasion of, of an outpouring of joy in the world. Right? It wasn't just that you know, Sarah and Abraham were redeemed and given this joy, but the whole world is kind of rejoicing along with them, which is a very nice image, right? Of kind of this birth that kind of portends. Well, what? Break out and singing a carol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That image, exactly. And I think it's because if you just read the verse on its own, you might think that she was saying, people will laugh at me. And the Midrash is saying, no, no, they're going to laugh with her because every, everyone is so excited. Um, the next verse is also kind of interesting. She goes on and she says, Mi milel Abraham hinika banim sarah. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would be able to nurse children? Because I've given birth to a baby in, in, his, in his old age. Um, you'll notice that she says Hinika Banim instead of Hinika Ben, right? She's not saying um, I've nursed, I, I will nurse a child. Instead, she says I will nurse children, um, which might just be a poetic turn of phrase. The Midrash show here as well, actually not the Midrash, the Gemara actually in, uh, in Masachet Babamatsiya says that why does it say Hinika Banim? Because people were skeptical that it was really her child. They said, maybe she's just kind of adopted someone else's child. She's really 90. How could she have had this child? And so according to the Gemara, she um, takes out her breasts and nurses all of the children around. So that way they can tell that it's really her baby, right? She's lactating and she's able to sort of nurse many children. And that's why the verse is, Hinika Banim Sarah, right? She's nursing the children, not just her own child. Um, 
Okay, then we're told that the child grows and, um, and is weaned. And Avraham makes a very big party on the day that Yitzchak is weaned. Sarah now sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian, who had, who she had given birth to for Abraham. She sees him being mitzachik. Right now, mitzachik is a word that could mean many things. Right? Literally, it means laughing. Maybe something, something having to do with laughter. Um, and it's also not clear whether she sees him laughing at the party, right? It says, you know, does the fact that verse 9 follows verse 8, does that mean that they are approximately located, right? That, like, at the party she sees him laughing? Or it could be that there's a party and then at some point afterwards there's laughter. And the reason why it matters is that it just has to do with how old Ishmael is at this point in the story, right? If it's at the day that the, the baby was weaned, right? If Ishmael was 14 when Yitzchak was born, right? He's 13 into circumcision, so Yitzchak is born a year later. If he's 14 when Yitzchak is born, and we're talking about a weaning party, so that means that probably Yitzchak is somewhere probably between three and five, right? Depending on what age they weaned babies then, right? Which would put Ishmael at either being, I guess, 17, or 19, right? Somewhere between 17 or 19, if it's actually at the day that the that Yitzchak was weaned. Um, if it's later, right, then Yishmael could be sort of any age. It seems like he probably is more like somewhere between 17 and 19, because in the rest of the story, he often gets referred to as a as a na'ar or a yeled, right? It sounds like he's still kind of young. So maybe we could assume that the laughing is happening at the party or, or short, shortly afterwards. Now, what exactly it is that Sarah sees Yishmael doing is... Um, is the, is that also the topic of a of a very famous Josh? It translates as playing, uh, but it should be with a sin if it was playing, right? Yeah, I think often the I think I think I think I think with the with the also some. I mean, it's sort of to laugh or to play. I think they're sort of related words in that way. Um, but not in my Yeah. Um, I, think, I think there are other places where the, the same words can be used in English. But what we'll see is there's, there's as I was saying, this famous midrash in Rishi Rabba that does um, provide several different possible meanings for the word Pesachik. This is the many different possible meanings of the word that's sahik, right? So we're told over here, uh, first number one on this side of the page, it says Grishi Rabba 5311. Right? Sarah sees the son of Hagar the Mitzrit, Mitzachik, right? Whatever, however we're going to define the word Mitzachik. Right? And we're told, Amar Bishimun ben Yochai. 
רבי עקיבא היה אומר בו דבר לגנאי, ואני אומר בו דבר לשבח. Right, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says, Rabbi Akiva used to understand this verse of Yishmael being mitzachik as being derogatory or negative, but I think it's not so bad, right? I think it's okay. Derash um, Rabbi Akiva, what did Rabbi Akiva say? He said, Vatera sarav gomer, ein mitzachik ela giloi arayot. He says that what, according to Rabbi Akiva, when, when Sarah sees Yishmael being mitzachik, that means something involving illicit sexual activity. It means, right, gilui ariot, sort of revealing of nakedness, which is the catch-all term for illicit sexual activity. Right, so according to Rabbi Akiva, How does he get, how does he understand that mitzachek means some sort of illicit sexual activity? Hermad um, Atamar, right, because we know that in the verse in Breshit, when Yosef, when uh, the story of Yosef and, uh, and Mrs. Potiphar, right, and Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife, when she's complaining about Yosef to her husband, she says, Right, the, uh, the Hebrew slave that you bought, Potiphar, he came litzachikvi, right? And there, in that context, remember, she's accusing him of trying to rape her. Remember, she tries to seduce him, he says no, he runs away from her, she grabs his garment, and then she's kind of embarrassed afterwards, so when her husband comes home, she says, oh, Yosef tried to rape me, and here's the garment, you know, because I struggled with him, and he ran away. And there, the word litzachik seems to mean attempted rape, and so therefore... Um, Rabbi Akiva understands that what it is that Hagar, sorry, what it is that Sarah sees Ishmael doing when he's being mitzachet is something involving illicit sex, and he explains, he says, Milamed shehaita imenu Sarah ro'aoto li Ishmael, right? This teaches us that our mother Sarah saw Ishmael mechabesh ginot v'tzad nishayanashim u'me'aneotam. He would go and sort of, uh, sort of sneak into gardens and sort of trap trap women and, uh, and rape them, right? So she saw, she saw Yishmael committing these terrible crimes, right? You know, sort of terrible crimes of rape and so forth. Tani Rabbi Yishmael Omer, no, so that's Rabbi Yishmael's opinion, right? He says Mitzachet means illicit sex or actually doesn't necessarily mean rape, but the, the, the um, example that they're giving is one of rape. Um, okay, then Rabbi Ishmael says, no, no. Rabbi Ishmael says, no, actually, the thing that Hagar, keep saying Hagar, I don't know why, the thing that Sarah sees Ishmael doing isn't mitzachet isn't as illicit sex, but rather, instead it is avodat kochavim, right? Worshipping the stars or idolatry. Right? Mitzachek is really idolatry. How do we know that it's idolatry? Because when the verse in Exodus describes the people sitting with the golden calf, the verse is Vayeshevaam Echol Veshato, the people sat down to eat and drink, Vayakumu Mitzachek, and they got up, Mitzachek, and there in that context, what it means is they got up to worship the golden calf, and so therefore Mitzachek means idolatry. What does this teach us? Then what really does Sarah see Ishmael doing? She would see Ishmael building these little um, little altars and um, hunting. Chagavim uh, are like 
locusts or grasshoppers and sacrificing them. Now, something that I think is kind of a little bit funny about that is that it almost seems that Ishmael is like playing at idolatry, right? He's not a full-grown idolater who can like sacrifice real animals that you would sacrifice, you know, like sheep and so forth. But he like builds these kind of miniature altars and sacrificing locusts, right? And so he's, uh, but but he's you know getting ready to uh, commit idolatry. Um, and that's what she sees him doing. And that's what Pesach means. Rabbi Elazar ben Ushal, Rabbi Yossi Hagalili, Omer, Ein alashon hazet sechot alashon shvichut damin. He says, no, it is not idolatry, and it is not illicit sex. Instead, it is murder. It is murder. How do you know this? Because... Um, there are two verses, right? One of them is in is in the book of uh, Samuel 2. Uh, one general says to another, Yakumu nahan arimbi Yisachaku l'tzanenu. Let that, that's what I was saying, that Yisachaku with the tzadi and the sin seems sort of flip back and forth in their usage of it. So uh, let, let the, um, the boys get up and sort of make sport before us, but really it's kind of a gladiator sort of event there where uh, the two sides each send a, someone to, to fight and they fight to the death. Um, Rabbi Azariah Mishum Rabbi Levi Amar, uh, sorry, so, uh, so he says he says it is it is in fact murder, right? So what it is that um, that that Sarafi Ishmael doing is actually killing people. Rabbi Azariah Mishum Rabbi Levi Amar Amar Le Ishmael Yitzchak Nelech Benirechal Kenu Basadeh. How you know what it, what exactly did Ishmael do? He would say to Yitzchak, Oh, let's go and see our properties out there in the fields. V'hayal Ishmael Notel Keshet Vechit. And as they were walking, Yishmael would take a bow and arrow, and he would shoot arrows toward Yitzchak. But he would pretend that he was just playing. Oh, I'm just, I'm just, you know, teasing you with these arrows. I'm just pretending to throw arrows at you. Um, and there's a verse from Mishlei. They uh, cite the first half of it over here. Like a person who. Um, uh, like a person who is laughing is the one who shoots out arrows and death. So too is a person who sort of deceives his friend and says, oh, I was only joking. Right? So the sense here is that Ishmael is kind of endangering Yitzhak, but kind of pretending not to, you know, pretending to just, you know, saying that it's all in jest, but it's, you know, it's a real danger. Um, Right, so this is this is all uh, Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai, right? He says all these other people read Mitzchak as being very negative, but now if you look at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines up from the, the bottom of the paragraph, he says, "Ba'omerini bodavar l'shevach," but I say something that is um, that is that is not negative, right? That is positive. Im l'shon azeshel tzuchot ela l'shon yerusha. When it says that Sarah sees Yishmael being mitzachik, it doesn't mean our three primary sins of illicit sex, idolatry, and murder, but rather um, it's about it's just about inheritance. Because when our father Yitzchak was born, everybody was rejoicing, everybody was very excited about the birth of Yitzchak. Amar lahem Yishmael, shotibatem. Yishmael said, "You fools! What are you making such a big fuss about this little baby for?" Right? I am I'm the one who's important, right? I'm the firstborn. I'm going to inherit the double portion. This baby is really nothing to get so worked up about, right? You know, it's really all about me. 
Nutella is to take, literally. Like, Nutella is to take, so I will take the double portion. In this context, we know it would be like inheriting it. Um, uh, sorry. Because um, we can tell from what Sarah says to Abraham, which is, right? She says, you know, you must send him away because the son of this maidservant will not inherit with my son. Um, therefore, we can understand from here that it's really about inheritance, right? That, you know, that Sarah's concern was not that, not necessarily Yitzhak was criminal, but that, sorry, that Ishmael was a criminal, but rather that Ishmael <coughs> thought that he was going to inherit, and she wanted to make it clear that, that he wasn't, right? So the last opinion over here. So, the Midrash, I would say, over here doesn't, doesn't make a distinction between the two, right? I mean, when you talk about Pishnayim, a double portion, usually that means material things, but it could also mean kind of, you know, to sort of be the primary heir, right? You know, which would be sort of a spiritual covenant as well. Yeah, so I think probably one of the things that is going on in the story is that Abraham might himself not entirely believe that, right? You know, he feels very connected to Ishmael, right? He's known him, you know, 14 years longer than he's known Yitzhak. Um, it could be that, you know, even though God has said that, he might still be hoping that maybe it will still be Ishmael, right? Because we don't, we don't have a sense in this story, right? It doesn't, it, it doesn't seem that Abraham kind of just totally turns his allegiance over to Yitzhak when Yitzhak is born. It seems as if he still feels very connected to Ishmael. So it might be that either, even if he had just said to Sarah, don't worry about it, Yitzhak will inherit, she might not have believed him. Or it might have been that he wasn't even willing to say that, right? It might have been that he was still kind of hoping that it would, you know, the inheritance would really go to Ishmael. Um, what was Azariah saying? What did you say Azariah said in the middle there? Ah, so he said, um, he thinks it's also kind of similar to murder, but in the sense of sort of playing, right? That they would go out to the field together and... Um, Ishmael would say, he's like, oh, let's, let's go out to the field together. And once they were out in the field, he would start shooting arrows towards him, you know, and just you know, pretend to be laughing about it, but it was really uh, more dangerous. And Rabbi Shimon says, it seems like he was the only one that read the next verse. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be a yeah. Which is, right, right? What's what said here? Yeah. So I think this is, I think basically, well, the way that I would understand this midrash is, to the extent that you think that Ishmael is doing something very, very terrible, Sarah's actions become more and more reasonable, right? If, if you know, if Ishmael is really a rapist or an idolater or a murderer, then you feel like, well, yeah, he really shouldn't be part of their household. I mean, probably something else should happen to him, right? But certainly you would understand that she wouldn't want him as part of their household. Um, if it's just that he's saying, hey, I was born first and I'm entitled to inherit, he kind of got the point, right? You know, he was, in fact, Abraham's son. He is Abraham's son, and he maybe does have a stake there. And so sort of kicking him and his mother out becomes a, you know, a harder story if you think that he's basically a good kid who thinks he should be inheriting. Whereas if he's like a really bad guy, then the rest of the story kind of seems less, less bad. Uh, so, yeah, what are you going to say? But it goes back to your earlier point mm-hmm. that things have changed. Mm-hmm. It, it, it almost doesn't matter, even if it's number four. Mm-hmm. Things have changed. It's, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Very, that chapter you said where everybody's right. getting circumcised and everybody's getting a new name. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is which is why you know God God supports Sarah's request over here, right? And I think yeah, I think it, it takes Abram a little bit longer to to come around to it. Yeah. Well, it's not not so bad. It's really really bad. Well, in terms of him as a person. Right? I mean, bad for the story, certainly, but in terms of like the character of Ishmael. Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally. Royal households have taken that as first and then gone to the murder part. Ah, okay, so right, maybe she saw it as dangerous. Right, on the other hand, there are many households where, you know, more than one child is able to come out of the household alive. And, you know, so it's possible that it would have been okay also. Yeah, well, we're getting down to the gist of the story. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so at any rate, she, she... Yeah, it's true. That's <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, that's why I kept translating it as, like, non-negative. Because, right, Shadok really does mean praiseworthy, but it, it doesn't seem as if he's saying something praiseworthy as much as just, like, not a criminal. Yeah. Which, in this context, I would say, relatively makes it praiseworthy. Um, one thing also that I just also want to notice is that one of the rabbis in the Midrash is named Rabbi Yishmael, and I, I want to come back to that afterwards because I, I think it's I think it's a little bit important. Um, okay, so right, so at any rate, um, Sarah sees Yishmael being mitzachik, and in verse ten we're told, "Vatomer Abraham garish ha'amazot be'etzinah." Banish this maidservant and her son, he will yirash ben ha'amazot in b'ni yitzchak, because the son of this maid will not inherit with my son with yitzchak. Now, one thing that I think is interesting is that not only has there been sort of changes in the household in general, but you can see that there's also a change within Sarah, because if we compare it both here and in the, in the story that we saw last week, there was a moment where um, Sarah wants Abraham to intervene. Right? And if you remember earlier, right, when she thought Hagar was disrespecting her, or when she saw that Hagar was, was disrespecting her, remember she complained in sort of a circuitous way. She said, My wrong is upon you. I gave you my maidservant into your bosom. And now that she's pregnant, she's, she's disrespecting me. May God judge between us. Right? She's clearly demonstrating a lot of sort of hurt and anger, but she's not really telling him what to do. Right? She's just basically saying, I'm so upset. You know, you've done, you've done me wrong. But she's not telling him what to do about it, right? Whereas over here, she seems much more confident, right? Here she says exactly what she wants. She's not sort of expressing her hurt and hoping that he'll figure it out and do something about it. Instead, she says kind of in no uncertain terms, you need to banish this maidservant and her son because he will not inherit with my son, right? So you get the sense that Sarah either feels a lot more um, kind of empowered within the family or also is just a lot more confident in her own ideas about things, right? She sort of was hoping all along that she was really going to be a part of the covenant, and now she sees that she is, and now she sort of feels like she can really say what she thinks needs to be done. But she's also, she's like a mother tiger. Yeah. You know, now that she's got her own baby, yeah. she's going to protect that baby. Yeah, oh, that is, you know, that is woe totally to anyone else who tries to get Aaron. Yeah, no, that is totally true also, right? She's not just speaking on her own behalf here, she's also speaking on her son's behalf. That's a great point. Um, and not only has there been a big change for Sarah, right, because, you know, she's much more clear in her articulation, but also if you look at verse 11 and Abraham's reaction, right, in verse 11 we're told, The matter was very difficult in Abraham's eyes. So the idea of sending Ishmael away was very bad in his eyes, because of his son, right, because of, right, Benoah over here, 
Um, but Noah over here, we don't even have to be told who it is, right? He feels very bad about his son Ishmael, but the verse just says, Beno, and you get the sense that in Abraham's mind right now, he might only really have one son, right? Ishmael is kind of the real child for him, and he talks, I'm sure it's a sweet little boy, and it's fine, but, you know, you get the sense that Beno, right, when he thinks about it, if you were to wake Abraham up in the middle of the night and say, who's your son? He'd probably say Ishmael, right? You know, that's his Beno. And he feels terrible. He really doesn't want to send Ishmael away, which again is very different from our earlier chapter. Remember in the earlier chapter when Sarah said, look what Agar is doing to me, may God judge between us, Abram said, all right, take care of it, do whatever you want, you know, she's your maidservant. Whereas over here, Abram is not willing to say that, right? He's not willing to say, oh, Hagar's your maidservant, do whatever you want with her and her son, because now the boy is Abraham's son, and he, he really doesn't want to send Ishmael away. Um, and it seems as if he's not at all planning to, right? He, what Sarah suggested to him seems very bad to him, and it seems as if he's not going to listen to her. So what were you think? Yeah, exactly. And the first doesn't even need to say Albino Yishmael, right? Or Albanav, right? About both of them. It's, it's Bino, right? Yes. It's, it's a little bit, um, if you remember at some point, uh, later on in Brashit, when uh, Yehuda is, is pleading with Yosef to let Benjamin go, one of the arguments that Yehuda makes is he, he, he sort of reports back on this imagined conversation that Yaakov has had with him. And he says that Yaakov said to Yehuda, Atayadata kishnaim yodali ishti. He says, you know, Yehuda reports back, my father said to me, you know my wife had two sons which is a crazy thing to say, right? And, you know, because Yudah is speaking. He's basically offering his own life in place of Benjamin. And what he's saying is, you know, for my father, my father really only had one wife, and he really only had two sons, right? There's a sense that even though Yaakov had four wives and 12 sons, in his mind he had his one wife, Rachel, and his two sons, and everybody else is kind of there in the background. And it seems that at the moment right here, that's the way Avram thinks about Ishmael and Yitzchak, right? Ishmael is his son, and, you know, everyone else is kind of... Yitzhak is, is, not, is not really in his mind. So he feels very bad. He does not at all want to send away Ishmael. And in verse 12, God has to intervene, right? It doesn't seem that Abraham on his own is going to, to take Sarah's advice um, or her suggestion or her command, depending on what you want to call it. In verse 12, we're told, Vayomer Elohim al-Abraham, al-yirabeinecha al-hanna'arva al-amatecha. Don't let it be bad in your eyes about, your, about, about the boy and about your maidservant. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, listen to her. Because Yitzchak is going to be your covenantal child. Right? And it seems that what God is saying to Abraham is, even though I told you that Yitzchak was your covenantal child, you haven't really assimilated that or internalized that. right? And so therefore you need to listen to Sarah. Because Sarah, Sarah understands how this is going to go. right? She understands the Yitzhak is the covenantal child. She is seeing this clearly, and you are not. And so therefore, you have to listen to her because Yitzhak is going to be your covenantal child, and you, Abraham, are not yet in a place where you can kind of bring that about. Yeah? It, it seems so it's almost like a literary device. Because mm-hmm. he's not only telling Abraham, he's telling everybody who's going to read this story for generations to come. If you think, mm-hmm. he's, it's almost like he needs this vehicle mm-hmm. in order to make it very, very clear it happens all the time. I have to pay the money for the flock because I want to make it absolutely clear in my place. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, this is Sarah's son, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not a son. Yeah. This whole story also tells us generations later, 
there is a distinction here and because it's itself. Yeah. So it's a, a tool, it's a, it's a vehicle of communication almost. Ah, so you think that the text is, it's not just that God is telling Abraham in this moment, but also the Torah is telling us, like, right. we really are the chosen ones. Right. Yeah. Or, telling you everybody we're not, you know, yeah. I, either way you want to read it, uh-huh. it's a real clarification of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, okay. Um, and God adds on, But also the son of the maid, I'll make into a great nation, because he is your son. And so God is basically saying, Almost the same thing that God has said to Abraham earlier, right? Which is that, yes, Yeshua'el will do fine. He will become a great nation. He is your child, right? You're not disinheriting him in the sense that he's not connected to you and you won't have a good life and, you know, kind of become a great nation. But he's not your covenantal heir. And because you don't seem to realize that, you have to listen to Sarah because she, she's the one who knows that. Um, we're told now in verse 14, Vayashim Abraham Baboker, Abraham wakes up early in the morning, Vayikach lechem mechimatmayim, he takes uh, some bread and some water, Vayitain el Hagar, he gives it to Hagar, Sama Shikma, puts it on her shoulder, Vayikayaled, and the boy, Vayishokah, and he sends her off, Vayikayaled, Vayitain el Hagar, and she goes and she sort of uh, wanders about in the wilderness of Be'er Sheva. Um, a few things are worth noticing about verse 14. One is that Yishmael is referred to as a Yaled. It is a boy, which is the thing that makes me think that maybe the incident of him being mitzachik is probably close to the, you know, is either on the day of the weaning party or close to it, because the text is treating him as, as a boy, not as an adult. Right? It seems as if he's, he's kind of young over here. Um, it also might be that in Avraham's mind, he's even younger than he really is, right? You know, from Avraham's perspective, he really is a yellow. But also later on, the narrator will refer to him as a nar. So I, I, I think the range of 17 to 19 seems like about right for the story. Um, it's also interesting that Abraham um, seems to feel so bad about sending them away, but doesn't actually send them off with very much. I think he gives them some bread and some water. It's kind of interesting, right? You know, especially given that in a few chapters when Abraham is looking to... Um, sorry, what? Right. Right. Maybe. Right. That could be. Maybe he's sending them a little bit because he thinks that then they'll have to, they'll have to turn around. Right. That, that could be. Um, I was just going to say, you know, in, in a few chapters, when Avram looks for a wife for his class, he sends, you know, ten camels laden with treasure to do it. So it seems as if he could have perhaps sent them off with more. So maybe the reason why was that he was hoping that if they didn't have enough, they would just come back home again. Um, oh, he's expecting them to come back. So he doesn't. So I'll listen, I'll like, oh, that's a very nice sort of rabbinic reading of it, right? I'll listen to sort of the letter of the law, I'll send them off, because I have to send them off, but no one ever said I couldn't take them back again once they, right? Maybe, right, that could be. Or maybe also what you're right, what Phyllis is suggesting is that maybe, maybe Sarah didn't want to give them anything more than that, right? Maybe she said just give them bread and water, and so that, that's why they're doing that. Yeah. So the language of this is the language of the Akita. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. that. In, in what sense? Early on, by shame, yeah. And, and uh-huh. they take food and water mm-hmm. and they head out. Mm-hmm. I mean, there aren't any, it's like in the next verse, with their own Yeah, I mean, there isn't, there isn't really a mention of bread and water in the Akedah story, but certainly the waking up early in the morning. And heading out. Yeah, and heading out and the fact that the child almost dies, right? And then an angel saves the child, right? There's, there's a, there are a lot of similarities between the two. In fact, you know, within the Islamic tradition, right, the, the main yeah. sacrificial yeah. story is this one, right? It's the sacrifice of Ishmael that gets reenacted in the right. pilgrimage, right. where they. I, mm-hmm. I was just wondering, they make a big deal out of the 
feel out of power. He's got on the bunker when he goes off at his top. He got up early and he did it eagerly. Is it the exact same language as yeah. this one? He just was eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's like they make a big deal out of it. No, no, the commentaries make a big deal out of it over here because yeah, because he doesn't really want to send Ishmael away, but because this is God's command, he wakes up early to do it, just like he doesn't really want to sacrifice Isaac, but you know, it's God's command, he wakes up to do it. Yeah. Now I always find it interesting because it seems like almost every time that we're told that Avram does something, he wakes up early in the morning. So he might have also just been like an early riser. But it is nice to sort of think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, when we're told about him doing things, it's, I mean, that's why also the prayer of Shacharit is associated with Abraham. He does, he does things in the mornings. Sorry, yeah. Thinking for reading this story about what happens in the next generation, where you have Rivka and she employs this this deceitfulness because she's worried that her husband is going to give the inheritance to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then I think about these two kids who got this. Um, each other and that the child who isn't chosen seems to be sort of the more kind of physically robust child in both cases, right? Ishmael is sort of described as this, you know, kind of wild man um, and Esav is also sort of the man of the field. Um, I think because Ishmael isn't Sarah's child, she doesn't have any compunction about just getting rid of the child, you know, getting rid of the son that she doesn't want whereas for Rivka, it's a lot more complicated right? because they're both her sons and they're not a, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but God's testing both of God is testing Abraham twice, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about his relationship with his son, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, and definitely. What he's going to do. I mean, so definitely, it's yeah. pretty parallel. Totally. Right? And, and yeah. you know, next week when we look at the story of the, you know, the reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the binding of Isaac, that, that yeah. will definitely be there. Yeah. I think the Midrash is definitely, like, if, if we re- have the Midrash in mind, mm-hmm. it's it's easier to read this story because um, if you exaggerate the differences between Ishmael and Yitzhak or all between Yitzhak and Yaakov, mm-hmm. that there that there's one one brother is threatening the other brother, or there's something um, not good about one of them. Um, it, in, in some ways, it simplifies the story mm-hmm. and makes it easier to read. But it, I, I'm having a lot of trouble reading this, and it, mm-hmm. it just seems like it that's from the text that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case, and that. Um, it seems extremely problematic that like what has Ishmael done that he mm-hmm. doesn't deserve to be the firstborn? I don't. It, it doesn't seem he's not Sarah's son, but why is that a reason for him? Like what, why is it? And it, what's even more troubling is that it seems like this situation, this mess, is a result of the way that God is controlling the situation. That Sarah first doesn't have a son, so Hagar has to be the one to provide a son. And then now that Sarah has a son, we're taking Ishmael out of the picture, and Abraham has to give up a child that he's had at least 17 years to develop a relationship with, and it's mm-hmm. difficult for him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it's, e like it's easier to read when we read it with the Midrash and saying that, well, there's something wrong with Yishmael and we don't want him around. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, harder, it's harder when you're not reading it that way and also thinking that Sarah feels threatened by him and that's yeah. why she doesn't want him around. Yeah, I, I would say I think one of the things that is much harder for me about this story than about the story where Yishmael is born is that Sarah actually behaves you know, in a worse way before, right? You know, abusing a pregnant woman seems to me to be worse than, you know, sending these people away. They're both not great. I think the thing that's more troubling about this story is that God is supporting Sarah over here, right? God is saying, like, yes, yeah, Sarah should be doing this. And my, my sense of it is that it is true that Sarah didn't have a child for a very long time. I don't know that God is responsible for the birth of Ishmael. It really is Sarah, right? That was her idea, right? She said, oh, I'm not able to have a child of my own. I'm going to go and use my maid as a surrogate with my husband. That seems to be her, her plan, right? And then she does, you know, then once Hagar's pregnant, things don't seem to be working out well for her, and then she's kind of left with this messy situation of this child that she doesn't want. So I definitely agree with you that it, it seems that Ishmael is kind of the victim in the story, right? It's not clear, right? You know, if we take the Midrash seriously that he's done these terrible things, it makes it easier. If it's just that he thinks of himself as the heir, you could certainly see why why he would think that. Um, and actually, let, let's just look. Uh, there are two more sources on the, the front side of the source sheet that I gave out. One is, is Barbanel. Now, Barbanel over here starts off by citing, right? The, one, one question is, what, why is it that Sarah really wants Ishmael out of the house, right? What, what is it? Is it that she feels threatened? Is it that, you know, she thinks that he's a terrible kid? What, you know, what is the, what's the reason? Um, Barbanel says, Sarah amra shekevan shelo yurash ben ha'ma'im bena, ma'atzorach sheyishiv bebeta laha'igal ma'aseha. So I said, look, given that he's not going to be the heir anyway, why keep him around? He's just kind of laughing at us. It's really better for Abraham to uh, send Ishmael out and let him grow up some other place. Given that he was still a boy, she said that his mother should go with him. Not to, uh, you know, banish her from her own, for her own sake. Not because Hagar has done anything wrong. Just to go, rather, you know, Hagar should just sort of leave because she needs to take care of her son wherever he is. And Barbanel says, He says, this is sort of the general reading of the story, right? The reason why, right, Hagar herself hasn't done anything wrong, but given that it's more expedient to have Yishmael out of the home, she should go as well. Now, the idea of being sort of expedient to have Yishmael out of their home is a little bit similar, I think, to the way that Hagar has been thought of by Sarah all along, right? She's just kind of, to the extent that she's useful for Sarah, Sarah kind of wants her around, and when she's not, Sarah would prefer for her to just disappear, right? And there is something, I think, very cold about that, right? It's, it's difficult to read about Sarah being the sort of person who kind of, you know, once somebody isn't useful to her, kind of just wants to get rid of them, which it, it sounds like that's what's happening over here. Barbanel actually goes on to say that he really thinks that actually it's not uh, not just now, but that all along um, Sarah has wanted Hagar and Ishmael to leave, but only once Yitzchak was weaned did she think she could say anything about it, because until Yitzchak was weaned, she thought that maybe Abraham wouldn't be willing to give up his, you know, assured heir of Ishmael for this little baby who, who could die. But once he's is sort of big enough to be weaned, it seems like he is, you know, he's going to make it, he's going to survive, and then she thinks that she's in a position to, uh, to demand that, that Ishmael be sent away. Sorry, just one second. If you look at the, the third source on the page, though, 
This is uh, Nachum Sarna's um, commentary on in, in the GPS uh, Genesis, and um, and what uh, if you look at the underlying part, he says the key to Sarah's demand lies in a clause in the laws of Lifi Ishtar where it is stipulated that the father may grant the freedom to the slave woman and the children she has borne him, in which case they forfeit their share of the paternal property. Sarah is asking Abraham to exercise that legal right. right? So Sarah basically says, really, Yishmael was entitled to inherit. Right? Abraham clearly recognized him as his son, and you know, as a recognized heir, he should have, he should have had a, a real stake in the inheritance. But apparently, the, the way, at least some, in some of the contemporary communities, the way the laws were set up was that if the uh, if the slave woman and her son were freed, then that would you know sort of the freedom was sort of in the place of the of the share of the inheritance, and so maybe that's why, according to Sarna, maybe that's why Sarah wants them to leave. Um, you know, and the text, of course, doesn't the text just tells us that it's connected to inheritance, right? She says you have to get rid of Ishmael, right? Because the son of the maid is not going to inherit with my son, and she wants to make that really clear. Um, and my sense is one of the reasons why she wants to make that really clear is that it is not clear to Abraham. Right? You don't get the sense that Abraham, even though God has, has made it, God has made it explicitly clear that Yitzhak will be the covenantal child, Abraham doesn't really feel that way, right? Abraham still thinks of Ishmael as his as his real child, right? As his bino, right? His son, and um, and it seems that in order for Abraham to kind of be able to focus on Yitzhak as a covenantal child, somehow Ishmael needs to not be there, um, which is, I think, very difficult for Ishmael and for Hagar. Um, and, uh, and in fact, the story is about to get more difficult for them, right? If you remember, they're, they, they're wandering around in the desert of Beersheba. In verse um, 15, here on the top of page 38, we're told, they run out of water. They run out of water, and so she, she sort of throws the child down under one of the bushes. Again, he sounds like he's kind of small, right? She's throwing down under one of the bushes. She goes and she sits at a distance away from him, the distance of a, of a bowshot. Because she, Hagar, said, I, I, I can't bear to see my child die. And so she sits a bit away. And she lifts up her voice and she cries. Then in verse 17 we're told, God hears the voice, not of Hagar, who we heard crying, but rather the voice of Yishmael. And so the angel of God calls out to Hagar from, from heaven and says, Malach Hagar. What's wrong, Hagar? Don't, don't, don't fear, because God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Get up and uh, carry the boy and, you know, support him. He the because I will make him into a great nation. God now opens her eyes, and suddenly she sees uh, this well of water. She goes and she fills up the flask with water. She uh, gives the boy to drink. And God is with the boy and he grows. And he lives in, in the wilderness and he becomes a bowman. Uh, he then lives in the wilderness of Paran. And the last thing we're told about him over here is that his w- mother takes a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, this is quite a striking story, right? You know, they, he goes from being sort of thought of as the heir of Abraham to almost dying in, in the wilderness. Um, 
And even though I agree with Suri that maybe Avram was hoping or planning for them to come back, it does seem kind of remarkably poor foresight on Avram's part, right? You know, like this is his son who he loves so much. How could he send him off with like no one to accompany them and just some bread and some water, right? What's going right? There's something crazy about that, right? Avram really thought of him as, as his child. He felt terrible about sending him away. Um, and then he sends him off so poorly provisioned that the boy almost dies, right? You know, not for this miracle. It seems that he would have died of this. Um, so if you um, turn the page over, uh, this, is, this is kind of one of the big questions of the story, right? What, what, what is going on here? Why is Abraham not giving them things, right? So Rashi says, Lechem lechemadmaim, he just gives them some bread and some water. But he doesn't give them any treasure, so he doesn't give them any gold and silver, or silver and gold. Because Avraham now hates Ishmael, because he had gone off in a bad way. Right? According to Rashi, Avraham sort of had this rose-colored view of Ishmael. He thought of him as a great kid. But actually, Ishmael was a sinner. Right? He was either a rapist or an idolater or a murderer. He did all sorts of bad things. Once um, Sarai and God open up Avraham's eyes to Ishmael's true nature, Avraham now totally turns off his affection for him. And that's why he sends him off with nothing, just with bread and water. Ibn Ezra, on the other hand, in, in source number two, has a different reading of it. He says, He took some bread and some water, he gave it to Agar and put it on her shoulder. And he said to her, Right? Take your son with you. And he sends her off. And it could be that Avram also gave them quite a lot of gold and silver. Um, he also gave her enough bread and water to get to like the next big city, which was Be'er Sheba. So Ibn Ezra says it's not necessarily that, that Avram sent them out with nothing. Maybe he gave them enough food to get to the next big city, and then a lot of wealth that they could use to sort of build their lives in the city when they got there. Um, but she got lost along the way, and so that's why they ran into trouble. And I guess Ibn Ezra would say the reason why the text doesn't mention the gold and silver is that if you are thirsty in a wilderness, gold and silver does you no good. What you need is, is water. So Ibn Ezra reads it as not that Abraham suddenly hates Ishmael, but rather that, you know, he gave them gold and silver, and, you know, just the bread and the water was just supposed to be enough to get them to the next town. Now that's fine, except you kind of wonder if Avram really cares about them, right? Why doesn't he send them with some escorts, right? You know, why not send another servant with them to make sure they got to Beersheba, right? Especially if you think about it at that point in time, right? For a woman to sort of be traveling kind of alone with a boy, that's kind of unusual, right? If you have more wealth at your disposal, you would think that Avram could have cared for them more. So there is something very bizarre about it, right? There's something very strange about that part of the story. Um, and another thing that's very strange about the story is that this is the last time that Avraham and Ishmael talk to each other in Tanakh or, or are even seen together at all, right? There's no point where, um, right, the, very, the next time we hear about Ishmael is when Avraham dies and Ishmael and Yitzhak come and bury him. Right? And there's something crazy about that, right? It's hard to understand if Abraham loved Ishmael so much, thought of him as his primary son, felt terrible about sending him off, how could he send him off with just some bread and some water and then never even kind of check in with him again, right? And if he really had treated Ishmael in that manner, then why did Ishmael come back to bury him, right? There's something, it seems like the text is kind of missing something, right? There's something that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Um, that's the same thing that never talks to him again. Um, that's true.
true. Saying that this but he does try to no. But he does. He does. He's interested in finding him a wife, right? He sends off his servant with the ten camels full of treasure. He certainly is looking he out for Yitzhak in a real way. Whereas it doesn't. We we never hear about any further point of connection between the two of them. Um, and that actually is, it gets us to the, the last source over here, which is, uh, it's actually, sorry, it's a bit of a typo. It shouldn't be Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, it's Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. It's a D instead of a B, in that second word. Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, it should be a D there instead of a B. Um, and um, this is actually a, a wonderful midrash that kind of imagines Abraham going to visit Ishmael after he sends him away. Um, let's look at the beginning of it now, and we'll, we'll look at the rest of it next week as part of our uh, discussion of Akinetika. So, Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer is a is a it's a midrash that was authored. I think the the dates are usually given for it is around sort of the eighth or ninth century, and we think it was probably from a country that was um, under Islamic rule, either North Africa, probably somewhere in North Africa. I think is the location that's usually attributed for this this set of midrashim. What um, years did you say? Eighth or ninth century. It's not it's not totally clear. Um, and uh, something that's good to know about Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer is that the style of Midrash that it is, is basically it's a, it's a narrative Midrash. It kind of retells the stories of, uh, of Breshid and Shemot, but adds in some kind of lots of extra details that did not appear in the, in the typical version. So here we're told, Shalach Yishmael v'lakach lo isha me'ervot mo'av va'eifa shema. Now remember, um, we were told in the verses that his mother finds him a wife from Egypt, and I would say this midrash is inserting itself somewhere between verse 20 and verse 21, right? Verse 20 is the one where he's living in the wilderness. In verse 21, his mother finds him a wife from Egypt, and this is this is slightly earlier, right? He's in the wilderness; he hasn't yet found his other wife from Egypt, and so he's found himself a wife from uh, from Moab, and her name is Aifa. La'achar shaloshanim. After three years, halach Abraham mirotet Ishmael beno. Three years go by, and Abraham decides that he wants to go and visit his son Yishmael. And so he wants to visit Yishmael, but he has to swear, he swears to Sarah that when he gets there, he won't get off his camel. Now, why does he have to, why, why does he make this oath? Yeah, right, exactly. Sarah seems to think that were Abraham to get off his camel, he might not get back on it again, right? You know, she knows that Abraham still really loves Yishmael so much. So he goes to visit, but he promises that he won't get off his camel, because how long can you stay if you can't get off your camel? Um, okay. He gets there in the middle of the day, to Ishmael's encampment. And he finds Ishmael's wife at home. So he says to her, where is Ishmael? She says, oh, he and his mother went off to uh, harvest some dates in the wilderness. So she says to him, sorry, he says to her, please give me some bread and some water because I'm very tired from my travel through the wilderness. She said, there is no bread and there is no water. He says, okay, when Ishmael comes back, please give him the following message. And Morlo say to him, Say to him that an old man came from the land of Canaan to see you. And the man said to tell you that the doorpost of your home is no good. 
כשבא ישמעאל, הגידה לו אשתו את הדבר הזה, when ישמעאל came home, his wife gave him the message, right, an old man from Canaan came to see you, and he said the doorpost of your home is good, שלחה, and so ישמעאל divorced. Okay, let's stop here for today, as it is a quarter to one. Next week we'll look at the... the whole Midrash in, in, in full, and we'll think a little bit about the relationship that it imagines between Abraham and Ishmael, and we'll also look at the reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, Akhidat Yitzvah. I will say, though, this is probably my favorite Midrash ever, or certainly one of the ones. I love this one a lot.